Sometime in or about 1928, Tolkien's friend and Oxford colleague C.S. Lewis remarked to his longtime friend Owen Barfield, You might like to know that when Tolkien dined with me the other night, he said apropos of something quite different, that your conception of the ancient semantic unity had modified his whole outlook, and he was almost just going to say something in a lecture when your concept stopped him in time. It is one of those things, he said, that when you've once seen it, there are all sorts of things you can never say again. The concept of ancient semantic unity to which Tolkien's remark referred is the thesis of Barfield's best-known critical book, Poetic Diction, published in 1928 and, quite clearly, freshly read by Tolkien. His statement that Barfield's concept had modified his whole outlook is sweeping and invites exploration. Given Tolkien's lifelong fascination with words and with myth, his compendious knowledge of Western European languages old and new, as well as their history and the principles underlying their development, what concept could have been persuasive enough to modify his whole outlook? A very simple one, as it turns out, but like many simple things, one with far-reaching philosophical implications. Some knowledge of Barfield's theory, therefore, its development and its ramifications will shed valuable light on Tolkien's whole outlook on language and his use of it in creating his mythology. And that's from the first great scholarly study of the Silmarillion, Splintered Light, Logos and Language in Tolkien's World. I'll be talking today with its author, Verlin Flieger. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome back to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, and with me today I have Verlin Flieger, to talk about her landmark study of Tolkien and Barfield's splintered light, Logos and Language in Tolkien's World. Or should I say Logos and Language? Logos and Language in Tolkien's World? How are you doing, Verlin? I'm well, thank you. How are you, Chris? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your book. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Listeners, Dr. Verlin Flieger is Professor Emerita at the University of Maryland at College Park, where she taught a sequence of graduate and undergraduate comparative mythology courses, Arthurian, Celtic, Hindu, Native American, Norse, to name a few. Since retiring in 2012, she continues to teach in a variety of venues, concentrating on modern fantasy with a special focus on the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Professor Flieger's publications include Interrupted Music, A Question of Time, J.R.R. Tolkien's Road to Fairy, winner of the 1998 Mythopoeic Award for Inkling Studies, Splintered Light, which is the work we're going to be talking about today, and Tolkien's Legendarium Essays on the History of Middle-Earth. I also recommend her edition of On Fairy Stories, as well as Smith of Wotton Major, uh, which I used for both of the podcasts that we did um, on this. She's uh, co-editor of Tolkien Studies, a yearly journal devoted to scholarly examination of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Professor Flieger's fictional works include Arthurian Voices, Green Hill Country, The Inn at Corbis Cow, and Pigtail, and A Waiter Made of Glass, which we previously talked about. 
Verlin, when we talked about a waiter made of glass and you offered to come back on the show very graciously, I asked if you'd be willing to discuss your first major book, Splintered Light, partly because one of the things this podcast is concerned with is the interaction between the Inklings. And your book's a brilliant reading of the world Tolkien created in the Silmarillion through Owen Barfield's theories about language. I think this might have been the first piece of inkling scholarship I ever read. I remember reading it in my 20s, shortly after college, and and it really just making an impact on, on me and introducing me to Barfield's ideas, Owen Barfield's ideas. I still tend to bring them up when I'm teaching history of English classes and, and maybe even give my students, if I feel they're up to the challenge, a bit of Barfield to to read. So I'm I'm so excited to be able to talk to you about this. This is really, in, in many ways, a dream come true. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, really. Anytime uh, to talk about talking, I'm happy. Ditto. So this is your first, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is your first major scholarly work on no. Tolkien, correct? Um, what What prompted you to write it? I needed to keep my job. <laughs> I was an assistant professor. And then, as I think probably still now, the rule was publish or perish. So I had to, if I wanted to get promoted, I had to come up with a book. And I had already published on this subject in, in a short essay, in a short-lived, I think, periodical called Studies in Literary Imagination. Hmm. So it offered itself as the the obvious topic for me to expand on. That's the practical answer. The other answer is I just love this material. And I find it fascinating. I find it endlessly intriguing, not always interesting, sometimes annoying, but something that you can grapple with. So it was it was kind of the logical next step. That's great. And so funny to me how out of a place of sort of practical necessity in some ways, real enjoyment can come. It was. And I think it's not unusual that sometimes you have to be pushed in a direction in order to find out that that's where you should go. And for me, like, you know, 23, 24 year old Chris Pipkin, you know, working at a 24 hour HR and compliance hotline and needing something interesting to read, just being able to enjoy the work of Tolkien and the work of Barfield sort of fused together and informing each other as your book kind of lays out. Supremely enjoyable for me. And this work is, I think about, it's about 40 years old now. It's getting on. Um, and like still, I think, as as relevant and as interesting and engaging as ever. And I, I yeah, I just. Because well, uh, a lot more has come out about Tolkien mm -hmm, since mm -hmm. I wrote that book. And I, I really don't want to be seen as making a case that Tolkien said, I will use Barfield in right. my apology because I don't think it worked that way. But the ideas yeah. were spinning around. And yeah. all of those guys were participating in them. Yeah. 
yeah yeah reading this it, it seems it seems clear enough anyway that that if barfield you know if if tolkien didn't have barfield consciously in mind through every you know every page he wrote he at least they they were kind of drinking the same water right they were both very much in agreement in terms of the things they were acting against and some of the ideas they were putting forward well i used the word participation just now and as i was uttering it i thought that's barfield these guys yeah. were participating in one another so it wasn't that they were jotting down ideas and taking notes. It was that the whole ambience of thought was something that they were engaged in and participating with each other in. Yeah. Do you want to know something interesting? I do. Barfield never read The Lord of the Rings, and yet his ideas are all through it. Now, you, you got a chance as you were writing this, maybe before, but, but I think as you're writing it, you got a chance to correspond a bit with Owen Barfield. Is that? Is that oh, I corresponded with him. We met uh, on a number of occasions. He was a lovely, very interesting man. Hmm. So, yeah, I got to to face the master and, <laughs> and test my ideas against, or my ideas of his ideas. Yeah. Against what he, he really thought. He was very gentle with me. That's great. That's great. Man, I'd be intimidated, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So he, what did, what did he think about the project generally as you were kind of telling him about it? Cause having never read Lord of the Rings, was he, was he kind of like, Oh yeah, I think that's likely. Or was he more skeptical, or just kind of? No, he he pretty much validated the way I was looking at it. Um, I I don't know the extent to which he would have said this is the right way to read talking. Sure. Yeah. I mean, especially if he hadn't read Tolkien, he wouldn't. Especially, he wouldn't well, he know. He read The Hobbit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He read The Hobbit and he liked it. Yeah. But he never got around to Lord of the Rings, and the Lord of the Rings is such a perfect illustration, backed up by the Silmarillion, of what he saw as the way human consciousness really operates. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so let's just for readers, readers or sorry, just for listeners, this is a this is an exploration of Tolkien's work using the theories of of Barfield, especially as put forward in poetic diction, but also, you know, he a lot of his other writings adumbrate and add to things that he says in, in poetic diction and, and and develop it further. So just for the sake of listeners, what 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 is the Silmarillion? I have to answer with a question are you talking in italics or roman type you mean the published volume mm -hmm. or the whole vast concept let's talk about let's let's say the aspects of the vast concepts 
that you that you explore in your book of which the one in italics is a concrete sort of a sort um, of sensation really yeah, yeah yeah well as i guess you know tolkien felt himself challenged by drawn to interested in the fact that as nearly as anyone could tell at the time he was thinking and writing, England, England, not Britain, mm-hmm. had no pre-Christian mythology. And it was a time when myth studies were really burgeoning and every nationality was discovering its own myth and particularly the Finnish Kalevala, which came to the Finns very late and was a tremendous influence on Tolkien. And his effort, as he described it later, was to try to reinvent something like that for the English. So if Shakespeare can write about fairies, where did they go? Why do we no longer have them? Uh, And it was out of that that he conceived the whole notion of the elves. He originally called them fairies. As, As England's window on the supernatural. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah so this is this is a history essentially of the fairies or 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 the elves like kind of broadly conceived yes but of course he wrote it over over the course of some 40 years and it developed and changed Uh, he first had it framed by a narrator who was supposed to have heard these stories on a on a previous voyage and brought them back to England. And one of the problems with the published Silmarillion, and he later confessed to this, is that Christopher removed that frame so that it just starts not quite in the beginning, but darn near as if this was um, not truth, but fact. Mm. Uh, And he later confessed that he felt he had made a a serious mistake and he tried to replicate, to to make reparations for it by publishing the whole history of Middle-earth, by going Mm. back to the early versions and showing how Tolkien moved from version to version and how the story changed and took shape and all of that. So it's a complicated question. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, basically what I hear and, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, this is this is Tolkien's imagined history of of the elves, right? That he'd been working on for about fifty years, right? From from the from yes. World War One until his from death, nineteen seventeen, mm-hmm. when he just came back from France, 
from when he was, what, 24? And he was still working on it when he died. Yeah. And the last bits of it are, are so different from the beginning that you can see this actual arc of imagination. Because when he got to his later years, he said, no, I can't, I can't say that. No, I've got to change that. Or, and I, I find this really puzzling and, and impressing, you cannot say this anymore. Like he changed the whole cosmology. Because his original cosmos was created from the light that was the original force of creativity and then he said no you can't have that nobody's going to buy that you have to have the sun where it is and the moon where it is and uh, and be a little more realistic and in doing so he he kind of messed up hmm. um, the beautiful concept that he had originally started with. Should nope. I talking more about the later volumes that Christopher published? Okay, okay. Principles of Middle Earth, and particularly Laws and Customs among the Eldar, which talks about, can you really have two species mate? Uh, can an elf and a human actually produce offspring? Mm -hmm. uh, and he was trying to marry mythology and science and getting into a terrible tangle. Right, right. But that tangle is not in here, is is, is no, part of what I'm saying. I mean, in, in that volume, he's he's kind of messing with his own excellent, you know, excellent work. But Christopher Tolkien, as imperfect and incomplete as the, the published Silmarillion is, it seems to not have Tolkien trying to marry science and, and mythology in it. And, and also he keeps this stuff in about the light in the published Silmarillion, even if he was kind of going back on that. And Well, he stuck up to the vision in mm -hmm. the published Silmarillion. Yeah. And he had, of course, at least two texts to work with. One was the Quainta Silmarillion which his father had finished the arc of. And the other was the outline that he sent to an old teacher, Dickie Reynolds, of a sketch of the mythology in which he was trying to explain it to somebody. And he used, Christopher used that a lot. Yeah, and and I mean, his work, I mean, it's, it's again, like it's so hard for me to talk about Tolkien you know, creatively without referencing Leaf by Niggle, but it it very much is the this man endlessly working on something, you know, and adding things and adding things and oh. getting it just right for as long as his life lasts, you know, before he's finally carted away, you know, but I haven't finished it. But but this is partly, of course, why the Lord of the Rings is is such a huge success is that that sense of background and texture that yes. the Lord of the Rings has yes. is the Silmarillion broadly conceived right is the mythology that Tolkien has the oh, yes. legendarium he's been creating his whole life absolutely uh, it stands behind it and it gives it dimension 
perspective, uh, sort of a long view, but but it's in the, I don't want to say unconscious because who am I to say Tolkien wrote from the unconscious, but it's in the places where one can see certain kinds of notions just coming out of him as as he wrote. There's a, there's a passage in The Fellowship in the very first volume where they're being led blindfolded through Lorien uh, and they have to cross the little brook and they have to get to the center of this of the of Lorien as a as a polity and then their masks are taken off and as happens with anybody when you blind your eyes and then open them the world looks different but listen to this and see tell me if it doesn't sound like barfield to you the others cast themselves down upon the fragrant grass, but Frodo stood a while, lost in wonder. It seemed to him that he had stepped through a high window that looked on a vanished world. A light was upon it, for which his language had no name. All that he saw was shapely, but the shapes seemed at once clear-cut as if they had been first conceived and drawn at the uncovering of his eyes, and ancient, as if they had endured forever. He saw no color but those he knew, gold and white and blue and green, but they were fresh and poignant, as if he had at that moment first perceived them and made for them names, new mm -hmm. and wonderful. That's and it's great. that last phrase, making names for things, that ties so deeply into what Barfield was trying to do with poetic diction, um, with his whole notion of ancient participation. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great segue, actually, to the next thing I wanted to talk about. So for readers who are, we have never done Barfield on this podcast. We, oh. we've, yeah. So this is the first time that we're really stepping a tentative toe into the into the waters of 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 Barfield. So, so how does that passage illustrate what Barfield's saying in poetic diction? What 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 is poetic diction about? What what argument is Barfield basically making? Well, it's the same argument that he's making and everything he said once he really he's only writing the same book over and over and over right. again different titles but it's the idea that there was an early he would say original way of humanities perceiving the world and and feeling itself a part of it and making names for things and the actual process of making names is at the same time what pulls you back from the thing you're trying to interact with and gives you some distance from it. And that's what's happening to Frodo. 
on, he's looking on things, he's seeing them as they were. That's original participation uh, in which the perceiver and the thing perceived are almost fused. And yet the process of making names puts a distance between the perceiver and the thing perceived. And it it's, for me, it's just condensed and distilled into this one paragraph yeah. in which Frodo looks on Lorien and has exactly that experience. Yeah. Yeah, words and 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 really the the consciousness, right? That words bring about and also reflect, right? right. The moment we have those things, we are aware that we know we are no longer quite a part of that which we are observing or talking about or or, or whatever else. You got uh, it exactly. And success is at once discovery and alienation. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and yeah, go ahead. Just that, that it has to happen. Yeah, and and that of course is why we need poetic diction, right? Is is <laughs> is part of what what both Tolkien and Barfield would say, right? Because because the poet, without taking away our ability to be conscious of things, recovers these old unities, right? Whether you know we we would read, say, I don't know Homer's language, right, and say, oh, he's being very metaphorical here, but Homer himself, at least. My understanding of Barfield, Homer himself would have said, "No, I was reporting these yes. these events, right?" But we see it as a metaphor because metaphors are our way of, again, healing this this basic fissure, right, between between senses of a word. Yes, I like your word healing. I think that works. Yeah, and and I'm sure there's. A lot more we, we we can say and will say about about Barfield said that there that the Hobbit has a very Barfieldian moment and he he identified Barfield particularly for the moment where Bilbo goes down into the cave into Smog's lair and the narrator says. There are no words left to express his staggerment. Hmm. And Tolkien said that's a pure Barfieldian. He's experiencing a, a response to the treasure. Oh. Hmm. And the narrator doesn't have a word to say what it is and confesses his inadequacy. There used to be a word, but there are no words left now. Hmm. Hmm. And Tolkien called that a very Barfieldian moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. And it's 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 yeah, that that it's a moment that someone experiences while in a state of wonder, right? But wonder at a whole lot of treasure, right? And yeah, I, I wonder if he's thinking of you know some of the some of the descriptions of treasure in, in Beowulf, right? That that perhaps would have retained that unity, or bound to be. Yeah, but that's that's fascinating. All right, so now we come to it. 
So taking Barfield's ideas and, and, and theories, right, as laid out in Poetic Diction and elsewhere, how are they, how are they at work? How are they reflected in the pages of, of the Silmarillion? What are some aspects of the Silmarillion that you can see this sort of starting as, as the sort of pure whole experience of, of some, or not even experience, right? But, but this pure whole something, right? And, and fragmenting into, you know, having both, both in terms of light fragmenting into, into colors and, and a word or the word fragmenting into, into words. How do you see this sort of process at work in, in Tolkien's in, myth? In the Silmarillion particularly? Mm-hmm. Well, well, everything's breaking up right from the first page or so into smaller and smaller units of itself. There was Eru, and he starts by creating the Ainur, who are aspects of himself. So there's the one becoming the many, and right away we have fragmentation, and, and self-identification, because each of the Ainur is an aspect of Eru. And then that switches to light. And first there are two lamps. Tolkien seems to take for granted that a world needs light, that you can't see without light. Right. You cannot perceive anything. But the light of the lamps gets extinguished and there's a there's a kind of progression though a kind of diminution of the light from the lamps which burn eternally to the trees which pulsate the two trees which one gold and one silver exude light the way a maple tree <laughs> exudes sap. Uh, mm -hmm. And then those trees are destroyed, but the light that they left behind is used to create the stars. And you get this progressive fragmentation into smaller and smaller units that is paralleled by the creation of first the elves and men as two different species and then those species disintegrate into smaller and smaller political fragments uh, in which disagreement pushes them apart uh, and then you have not just elves which are people of the light but light elves and dark elves and you see this progressive shattering of a whole concept that is parallel with language. It, and I'm not saying that Tolkien started with a chart. This is not an office um, flowchart. Right. Um, but it is his notion of how things break into smaller and smaller components that you can paradoxically see more clearly because they are small, uh, that fit with a then current and purely external 
to Barfield, but parallel with him, theory of Indo-European languages, mm -hmm. uh, which started as some sort of proto-tongue that nobody has ever heard or ever spoken that we can tell, and was inferred to have fragmented into smaller and smaller languages that reflected but changed the mother tongue. And then you have Romance, and you have Germanic, and you have the Asian languages and the Amerindian languages, and the whole structure of humanity takes on the same fragmentary process. Right. I don't you, think Tolkien felt he had invented it. I think he felt he was just using it. Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the I mean, there's so many paradoxes here, right? Well, one of the, yeah. one of the really interesting ones is you know you say smaller and smaller, and that's right because it is fragmenting. But at the same time, that fragmentation takes the form of developing new words and new shades of meaning, right? Out of out yes. of this single kind of holistic reality and, and unity, right? You have increasingly the ability to describe things. It's just the things we're describing are tinier pieces of the main thing, right? So there's oh. a there's a kind of as as our language, you know, at least according to Barfield, as our language gets more analytical, we also get more alienated from whatever from from whatever that sort of primal reality is, right? Language yeah. almost divides. Oh reality but primal perception right yeah yeah i think it's it's really i i find reality a very difficult term to deal with yeah and absolutely I like to stay safe and away from it right but you know just take physics you start with newton he says the apple fell hmm, interesting and before you know it you've got nuclear physics and astrophysics and all kinds of subdivisions of physics that separate the primal perception that there is a controlling force within the universe into smaller and smaller disciplines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see this, you know, you can see this in, in academics generally, right? We used to have these, these people who were good at every discipline, right? Because as far as the disciplines had evolved you were able to do that right and now it's it's you you can't be excellent at all of them right there's simply there's there's so much technical knowledge that you need to acquire to be excellent at one aspect of one of them um i agree but yeah one of one of the things that's really interesting to me both about barfield's vision of language and and tolkien silmarillion is that there is this sort of this fragmentation of meaning, right? This breaking apart of this like unity with Eru into into the Valar, into well, know. first the Ainur, then the Valar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we have distinctions made among the Ainur. Yeah. And and then into the physical world and 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 light and shades of light and you know light shading into fragmenting into color and and all of this. And people it, don't don't forget. <laughs> The population yes. is picking up too. Yes, but they were all Eldar, right? And right. then they become people who speak. Yeah, the Kundi, and then they become 
Calaquendi and Moraquendi, light speakers. Think about that. Yeah. And dark speakers. And then it becomes perception because the dark speakers don't call themselves dark speakers. That's what the light speakers call. And so there are more and more distancing mechanisms that move phenomena, including beings, further apart. I think Tolkien saw that in his own world. Yeah, there's there's tragedy already, it seems, inherent in the nature of things. I think, I think he knew that. Yeah, which which is interesting, which in some ways is different from just kind of traditionally what the Christian conception of the fall has been, right? That everything was perfect and then the snake, you know, then then yeah. Satan fell and the snake came and then Adam and Eve fell and that's why things are hard, right? We're with Tolkien with his Middle Earth. Yeah. He builds imperfection into creation right yeah it's not not the fault right and if it's anybody's fault it's errors right yeah 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 pretty daring when you think about it yeah absolutely and and there's also a it's hard to know sometimes both in his work and in barfield's poetic diction it's hard to know is this fragmentation in itself a bad thing or is it just a necessary thing to in order for there to be anything right well i think the answer to your question is yes Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so so yeah even even you know without melkor you still have the differentiation of eru the one into these various aspects of of eru is one of the aspects mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then and then with the elves as well long before feanor comes on the scene right you have differing responses to the light right as you were talking about before right the the difference between the calaquendi and the moraquendi and the and the even the different speeds with which they respond to the valar's invita- invitation to come over to That's valinor that characterizes them but 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 it's, you know, even there you have this sort of fragmentation and also the odd paradox, right? That the elves seem to be good. Probably we could find a more nuanced word, but I'll, I'll stick with good for now. The elves seem to be great, I guess, insofar as they're responsive to the light. But that invitation, sorry, go ahead. No, they don't. The elves are not good. Uh, they don't even seem to be good. Uh, Tolkien called them embalmers. Mm. Um, they're trying to hold on to things the way they were. Right, right. Uh, it, it's a terrible mistake, and it's one that everybody makes if all you read is The Lord of the Rings. Right. That the elves are wonderful, and Galadriel is beautiful, and you know, mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. shall love me in despair and all that. Right, right. But he never meant his elves to be like that. He meant them to be imperfect. He meant them to be flawed. He meant them to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Do you think then, you know, back back at the beginning of time when you have the elves awakening under the stars, right? And and they're invited by the Valar, which, you know, you know, the the 
author of the the narrator of the Silmarillion opines, you know, the Valar should not have, have done, done this, right? But some of the elves go quickly with the Valar. Some take their time. Some don't go at all. Does that have any effect on the goodness of of the elves? Are those that elected not to go with the Valar? Are they are they less good than the elves, however imperfect, who went with the Valar? A good is a tricky word. It is. It is. I should come up with a different one. Because I think Tolkien, he sort of outsmarted himself because his elves are beautiful, appealing. Everybody loves them. You want to be like them. Sam just adores them, and we all feel and see with Sam, and yet he meant them to be flawed and mistaken and right. not good. And the, partly the Silmarillion as it was published in 1977 really doesn't take enough of an account of that. I think I'll just leave it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's what's interesting to me is that we, you know, rightly or wrongly associate brightness and and light with goodness and intelligence and beauty and and all of that sort of stuff, right? And we we tend to associate darkness with the opposite, right? Even if we're incorrect to do that. And so, what a lot of times, what what is easy to assume is not that the not that the elves that go make the trip to Valinor are perfect right but rather that the elves that make the trip to valinor are somehow more literally and figuratively enlightened right or or uh, Village, and you right. can't get away from it they've seen the light right right and, um, and whether he meant to or not tolkien's story is invoking all of those concepts and all of those sort of tropes that yeah. we all know about you know if you read comic books what's the what's the symbol for an idea mm -hmm. a light, bulb. light bulb yep you can't get away from it yeah but i think tolkien was really attracted by the paradox yeah that that what is really so bad is it's what's bound to happen it's what has to happen now mm. he never gets to Barfield's final participation. Yeah. Yeah, because can you can you talk a bit about that and what, what that is? What the final participation, mm -hmm. which Barfield projected, was the idea that in the whole arc of our linguistic understanding of the world, we would come round full circle to again, being able to participate fully in it. It's like that, oh, what is it? I, it's not Eliot, but it might be. Anyway, to arrive where it started and know yep. the place for the first time. Uh, and Tolkien never gets there. He, I think he's more drawn to the dark yeah. than he is to the light. Yeah. And uh. he doesn't he never, except in certain kinds of projections of this will happen, he doesn't allow himself to go there.
so what what does that mean for Tolkien's view of language and light and and hope and things like that in in the Lord of the Rings? Do you see the same sort of influence of Barfield's poetic diction minus this final participation, which is more hopeful? How do you see it play out in in the Lord of the Rings with with Frodo and the characters there? Well, this is my own personal reading. I think The Lord of the Rings is a very dark book. I don't think it has a happy ending. I think in terms of Frodo, it's a tragedy. Mm. I don't think it's so much what it is often called, which is good against evil. It's much darker than that. It's about how good becomes evil. Hmm. That's what happens to Frodo. That's what the fragmentation is all about. Yeah. I mean, you do you do pick up, in, in one part in your book, you do pick up something that Gandalf says, right, that hints that, like, we, do, we, never, we never get the full... No, we never redemption, do. right? Yeah. But we get little glimmers here and there, right? And you do end when you're talking about Frodo's journey and how you know there's there's a lot to be depressed about there with with poor Frodo. He is a hobbit broken by these circumstances that he self-sacrificially, you know, offered himself to this quest and and he is not well by the end. But there's a moment in Rivendell when he looks like maybe slightly more transparent than a hobbit should filled with clear light right yeah yeah and you bring you bring this up and and gandalf who perhaps is just foolishly optimistic as as saruman says he is but but maybe there's a wisdom in that in that optimism right saying this is something through which clear light could shine oh look at look at the look at the dynamic Hmm. what happens to frodo happens to Frodo. What Gandalf says is he may become. Right. Who knows? Yeah. That's that's Tolkien sort of giving with one hand and taking away with the yeah. other. Yeah. I think in many ways he wants to have hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's also, as he says, a Christian and a Catholic. And so he believes in an imperfect world. And that's the one that he writes about, is the right. imperfect world. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and this this long defeat of... The long defeat, yes. Yeah. Um, that's the Beowulf essay. Yeah. Not the fairy story essay. Right. Yeah, I, I love what you do with those two, by the way. I love what they do with themselves. Yeah. Or, or what they... What they show us about Tolkien is, is that tension between the long defeat and the happy ending. I think he hoped for one. I think his experience showed him the other. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned in, in the final, I feel like in in the final chapter, you want a hopeful note to end on, right? And you and yeah. you find Baron, right? Say and say, well, yeah. you know, things didn't so go so great for for Frodo, but Tolkien saw himself, hopefully, potentially as 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 Baron, as this hero that always went toward the light, right? And and then again, particularly in in 
rewriting that, Tolkien's Baron changed tremendously over the course of the narrative, over the course of Tolkien's development of it. One of the things that Christopher, one of the gifts that he gave us, God bless him, was those three great tales that he published in the years mm. before he died. And the tale of Baron and Luthien is just fascinating. Have you read it? I've read the shorter version. I don't think I've read the entirety of the new one that that's well, the, it, you know. it, the, the story of Baron and Luthien changes. Baron was originally an elf, which is absolutely not what we have right he is so it's clear to me that tolkien was was inhabiting this whole concept and trying to trying to wrestle with it in a way the the first the tale of tenubio which is the first version of the story of baron and luthien is very funny uh, but it's told by a little girl, a sort of storytelling session that is almost unrecognizable as the story of Baron and Luthien, Luthien in the published Silmarillion. Hmm. So, so what is just for just for listeners who who might be unfamiliar with with the story of Baron and Luthien? If you had, you know tell the tale in about a minute or so. What is the version of Baron and Luthien classically understood? Uh, it's a story of two people who meet and fall in love and are separated by circumstances. Fairy tale trope. Mm -hmm. But I, I couldn't condense it any more than that. Right, yeah. So materially. And Christopher was very honest with his treatment of the Baron and Luthien story. When he came to do Turin to Rambar, um, he made it one complete narrative. But when he did Baron and Luthien, he showed all the bits and pieces, mm. how it began, how it developed, how it changed, uh, all kinds of things that Tolkien sort of tweaked the story with that provide a much more interesting mm -hmm. external narrative of its composition. But of course, everybody reads Baron and Luthien in terms of Tolkien's own name mm -hmm. and the gravestone. Right. And right. she was my Luthien and she knew it and his name is Baron. And, and so there's a sort of external mythology that grows up around what we have made out of that. Yeah. And and that, of course, do do all of the versions involve the a Silmaril? Or is that a later thing? Or Yeah. Okay. As I recall. I don't want to speak authoritatively because I haven't read that the tale of Tenuvial, but I think it, yeah, it has a Silmaril in it. Okay, okay, yeah, and that's one of the things that that happens to these to these jewels, right? Because again, the Silmarillion 
is named after the Silmarils, which are which are jewels which are essentially splintered light, right? Essentially light light that light that can be possessed after being worked into the form that they they are. And so so much of the Silmarillion is about the okay. the yeah, the attempt to possess what what you have what you have created, right? And and not recognizing that that light ultimately, you know, metaphorically, literally ultimately can't be possessed in that way, right? Which is can't be um, possessed and yet it is always possessed. Right. By somebody. Yeah. And that's yeah. the paradox that Fanor <laughs> says, no, I won't give you my Silmaril to Yvana. I, I won't do this a free will. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, the irony is he can't give it to her because he doesn't have it. Yeah. It's already gone and he doesn't know it. Yeah. Um, so he possesses it, Melkor possesses it. The sons of Feanor keep trying to it's always a fight. It's interesting how often light. Well, I don't want to get into this. I find <laughs> Tolkien's use of light with the Silmaril kind of problematic because it causes so much havoc. Right. And and that's not the way we generally treat light. We talk about enlightenment. Yeah. Uh, but the Silmaril wreaks havoc wherever it happens to land. Yeah. We're all of them. Until, although the, the great, for me, the height of and most inspiring moments in the entire Silmarillion is the voyage of Arendil. I'm not sure if I'm saying his his Arendil. Uh, yes. Arendil. Spelling changed. Yeah, uh, but yeah, where where he's you know he he has this thing suddenly that that everyone has been fighting over and things have gotten really dark partly because of this thing, and he you know, goes west to try to find the road back to Valinor so that he can return to the Valar, this thing that Feanor probably should have given to them, you know, way back at, at the beginning of, of things. There's only one left, but he he huh? he brings it to them and gives it to, you know, what, what Frodo essentially failed to do with the ring, right? And he's... But, but look at the... Look at the logistics of it. The Arendil was one of Tolkien's earliest, the voyage of Arendil mm -hmm. was one of his earliest poems. And he was writing it about as a sort of mythology of the evening star. Yeah. As this brilliant light, but it's also the morning star. So how can he return it if he keeps doing it over and over and over again? Because hmm. the voyage of Arendil has to happen. Right. Times. Yeah. Although that's that in itself. I mean, it is a it is a voyage of surrender rather than a voyage of I don't know trying trying to keep something right. A, a voyage. It's it's a it's a voyage of. Well, um, I'm not sure that giving and keeping or even the best way to to approach it because it keeps happening <laughs> yeah. yeah again and again 
Yeah. It's it's a repetition of an action. Yeah. Which of course, you know, as as mythic of an action as that is, to me makes a certain amount of sense, right? That that you would continue to see the same great yeah, great action by because the, the Valar reward him in a way. I mean, it's you could view it as a reward, you could view it as a curse, right? <laughs> that he has to sort of forever ride in the sky as the evening star with the with the and morning star with the Silmaril bound on his brow. But it's but it, but it also he is of mariners most renowned, right? The hope that cometh unlooked for, right? So there's a there's there's a positive valence there, even if, even if there are some things that you're still like, well, Elrond never got to see his dad again, or 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 whatever else, you know. But uh, yeah, it, it's a yeah, I I I do I do love that myth, and as you know, like that one, I do I do. And yeah, and to, and to me, I do view it with with hope, right? It's the it's the yes, it's the evening star. It's the star that comes out when things are getting dark. But it's also the morning star that that precedes the the sun. Ooh. Even if essentially, you know, this is all cyclical anyway in this world, right? <laughs> and then night just comes again. But uh, yeah, certainly meant a great deal to Tolkien. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, he put it into the mouth of a character. In actually, in the Notion Club papers, mm-hmm. Loudon, but I think probably Humphrey Carpenter was the first to assign this quote to Tolkien. That when he first saw that name, it resounded with him. It he felt as if he had heard it before, mm-hmm. uh, and that it it brought a very deep and not entirely understood response yeah how interesting because so much of what he really resonated with were the big tragedies right or the uh, or or the oh yeah you know we have yet another saga in which everything just went wrong right or 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 the you know the ring saga right yeah but but then you have this line is the big tragedies yeah uh, but then you have this this line that does betoken joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief, yes. right? Yes. We talked a little bit about fragmentation of of meaning, right? Uh-huh. And that, that that basically, as words get more complex, as we get more words, there's a kind of distance that we that we put between ourselves and the things we're describing, right? And 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 distance also between words that used to be one word and 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 fragmented and, and and divided and according to barfield metaphor is us putting those ancient unified ideas back together right so that we right. can experience yeah. them in a, in a kind of redemptive way and the poet in some ways redeems the world right by redeeming our experience of the world poetry does but one of the things that i do as a you know, as 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 a teacher, right? As a teacher, especially of writing, as I, I try to enhance students' abilities to say things clearly and to say things as precisely as possible, right? And am I taking their their poor, innocent minds that are you know that 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 have so many undivided meanings of words, whether whether it's slang or whether it's just they they don't have as many different ways to say things as I do, and alienating them from themselves is is that the am i am i playing 
that sort of role when I when I teach are them to you, write better? Are you a rule? Yeah, I mean. Yeah. But uh, isn't that part of the process? Yeah. Don't yeah. they have to find new and better ways of saying things and make for themselves fresh and poignant as if they have just perceived them and made names for them. Isn't that mm. what you do as a teacher? Yeah. Uh, although like maybe they already are there, right? I mean, it's, it's a very, I mean, I've, I've viewed both Tolkien and Barfield as, as very romantic in the way that they, in the way that they think about things. They're there, but they don't know they're there. And that's what yeah. participation is. Yep, fair. It's what I you like that. do. That's what your job is. Yeah. Is to show them how to know that they're there. Right. What what do you think in general? Like I I've I've had a few like awkward exchanges with like say linguistics professors in grad school and and then also you know, with students when I've taught it, the history of the English language class, like I said before, where I've where I've sort of brought up Barfield's theories, right? And 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 the professors of linguistics that that I've had have just been like, this is completely out of left field. I don't. This is very interesting. I just don't know what to do with it because they all they all read Chomsky, mm. and Chomsky's ideas are very powerful and very prevalent. And he says the structure of language is inborn. It's already in us. And that's just going in the completely opposite direction. Do you think this is something with with Barfield that I that I've wondered about myself? Because I love, I love Barfield's idea. It's it's so neat. And I, I kind of want it to be true because it's it's just fun to to think about. Yeah. But at the same time, we talk about the development of language among human beings, but then what I find myself often asking myself is, is which language, right? And because, because there's not just sort of one human consciousness expressed linguistically through one language from back at the beginning of time. I mean, even Indo, even Indo-European would have been one language among many at the time. It's just the one that like really caught on for whatever reason, maybe because they had horses, maybe because they weren't allergic to milk or something. Nobody knows, but there's, is this fragmentation of meaning, is is Barfield talking about meaning fragmenting throughout the history of human consciousness, or is he talking about within a particular language, that language, finding more ways to to say things, right? He has to be in both because he, he inhabits his own language. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the whole Indo-European theory was conceived by Germanic and English philologists who were looking at the history of words. Linguistics is not philology. Right. Philology is the history of words. Yeah. And linguistics is structures of speech right right how do they work right now yeah but also are we hardwired for for speech right what do you do you find i mean do you do you think i think i think there are things within barfield that i'm i'm sort of like oh yeah that that is probably true right like the breath wind spirit 
thing. I'm sort of like, yeah, most likely people. Yeah, but you said that there were some things you didn't agree with, and I wanted to mm -hmm. ask you about those. Yeah. So to me, it, it's when he takes that takes that observation, right? That that I, I mean, I think people like Max Mueller, right? Yeah. Viewed viewed primitive man, right? As as essentially, um, yeah, there are a uh, lot. Of they, they like don't have a spiritual sense or something like that. And then they would apply all of these pragmatic practical things to spiritual ideas or, or whatever else. And I think people like Tolkien and, and, and Barfield are, are much closer to it when they're like, well, no, I mean, <laughs> primitive man, you look at occasions of Western, you know, secularist assumptions in, tribal societies that doesn't really happen right and so they they must be intuiting when they're talking about the physical world they're intuiting spiritual realities as well and and to me i think that's very insightful for for the most part i just think when it's widened to okay let me tell you about the history of human thought right yeah there are so many languages that have come and gone there's a kind of arrogance in thinking um, you can deduce the history of human thought and reading sanskrit right right and, and even i mean even assuming right that languages as our own has i think and i think it's i think that's true in, in english right it's it's gone from maybe simpler to more complex in certain yeah aspects right it's it's become the new latin the new lingua franca right so it has to express other things that it wasn't able to express before or generally didn't express before but i don't know that all languages move from simple to complex i think probably a lot of times there are lots of other words that just get lost and we can trace a whole bunch of senses of one word back to that primal word but at the time there would have been a bunch of other words that we've that we've gotten rid of since and you know things specific to the development of english have happened to cause us to be able to express finer shades of meaning in english as it's developed also though on the level of the vernacular yeah in some ways we're kind of just as simplistic as you know certainly people in chaucer's time were right yeah. only more simplistic than chaucer himself but yeah so the, this sort of view of language as uh, of development and, and of and of language changing through time as essentially the way most people think of evolution right is going from simple to complex i don't know that i buy but i think so but but yeah i think certainly when you have simpler language it can be poetic without necessarily intending to by encompassing more meanings of something right through one word right and I, I think i see this a lot with like the romance languages for example right where where it gets to a place in their heart you know in their heart that a lot of times english doesn't for us but yeah. well and every language has words that are untranslatable right you know you can't say this in french or this is a french word you can't say it in english yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah and, and there are concepts that you can't express yeah and you try to put a bunch of english words together to try to capture you try to use so many words right yes um, look at some translations of homer 
yeah. that are twice as long as yep. the Greek texts because they're trying to convey those compressed movements. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there there is a kind of fall when language changes, and and there is a kind of language is always changing. Yeah. There, there's a kind of, as as you say in, in Splintered Light, Tolkien himself admitted, as nostalgic as he was for certain things, he himself admitted, you you have to have change. You can't, part of the elves' yeah. great tragic flaw, right, is is that they, they don't want to accept that change. Uh, well, he talked about the fortunate sin of Babel. Oh, I like, could you, could you say more about that? Because that's really cool. He just called that story he was comparing it clearly to a fall and to the fortunate fall and the whole notion of the fortunate fall is if you hadn't lost paradise you'd never have gained heaven which is a pretty sectarian view mm -hmm, of it. Mm -hmm. but he is transposing that to say if you only had one word you wouldn't have all these marvelous languages right that express so many different things in so many different colors. Yeah. And the prism and the, the notion of breaking up the light into its color components yeah. as being the, the fortunate sin of language. Yeah, yeah. Analogous to that is the... The idea of losing those lamps on either side of the world, which gave constant light, right? And and replacing them with the trees. But the trees were different colors and they were beautiful. And they were, you know, one one would dim while the other glowed I brighter. And uh, I just I think that is the most beautiful concept that Tolkien yeah. ever came up with. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so fantastic. That it uh, is. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean I mean I I love in in this book the connection between words and light that you articulate and, and sound and light, right? And and that the the word to the word to appear and the word to wow. speak. Phenomena and then the notion of that language makes things appear. Yeah. Yeah. That if you don't have a name for it you don't know what it is. Right. And so listeners, it's been around for four decades now, still as far as I'm concerned, a classic as are, as are Verlin's other scholarly works on, on Tolkien. But, you know, treat yourself, pick up splintered light. It's so much fun and, and, and just gets you thinking about the nature of language itself as well as as well as time and words and of course also treat yourself by picking up poetic diction or, or the silmarillion right or the history of middle earth series poetic diction and the silmarillion right that's right and that's right the history of middle earth yeah yeah uh, so verlin thank you again so much for for giving of your time thank uh, you this has been a real delight it's been so much fun, and, and obviously, I would love to have you back anytime you want to talk some more about Tolkien. I will be more than happy. Sounds wonderful. Sounds wonderful. And and listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you all next time. All this encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent fan. 
with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.